coming to the market today. I'm just like really dope just to see all these beautiful faces being supportive. Thank you so much for coming. Um, my name is Marcel. And, and I'm Isabel. And we're both editors at Top Rank Magazine, which is a Brooklyn-based publication for buying about women of diverse backgrounds who are just basically doing some really dope shit in their fields um, that who we really respect and admire. Um, Isabel and I are also co-hosts of the Top Rank podcast, which comes out monthly, kind of-ish. Our last episode was about Selena um, and sort of the politics of her fandom. Um, we've also made an episode about nameplate jewelry, which was really fun. Um, but today we're gathered here for quite a different discussion, which Isabel is going to tell you all about. Hey, so on the occasion of this exhibition, we thought it would be a good idea to get some thinkers together to consider sort of how Mami Wata, the goddess that this exhibition is based on, um, can help us think through topical issues now as well as our own identities. So that's kind of like a theme. And we have some fantastic guests who we're gonna ask to introduce themselves. So maybe we could start with Doreen. Yeah. Hi. <laughs> My name is Doreen St. Felix. I am a writer and an editor. Um, I work at MTV News, but besides that, I write a lot about music and culture at a lot of venues. Hi guys, thanks for coming. Um, my name is Jenna Wortham, and I'm a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine, and I write about the intersection between technology, digital culture, and our lives. And I'm working on an art book project called Black Futures with Kim Drew. Cool, I got a mic. Hi, everybody. My name is Ariana. Um, I'm Lower East Side native and co-founder of the skateboarding gang fem revolutionary feminist project Las Brujas. Um, I make music, and I like to party. <laughs> Peace. Uh, my name is Ryan. I hate intros, but I'll try. <laughs> um, I am one of the founders of Brooklyn Boyhood. We are a queer and trans collective based here in Brooklyn that does a lot of rad shit that I hope we could talk more about. Um, I also do a lot of events and parties and create safe spaces for community and um, a bunch of other shit. Because I feel like we all do a bunch of other shit, probably, yeah. also. That's why I hate intros. <laughs> so we also have water that I guess I will pour out for the guests. Yeah. Okay, well, I'll do a little intro in the meantime. So the Mami exhibition, as I mentioned before, focuses on this deity, Mami Wada. And Mami Wada is, um, is a deity of hybrid form and kind of complex and dissonant identities. So... She defies expectations, binaries, and typical personification. She defies the very binaries of gender and selfhood that constrict each of us. So we're constantly being asked to compromise and suppress ourselves because we live in a society and a dominant culture that hasn't evolved to kind of comprehend or accommodate our needs. The question, sorry, I'll repeat, is how can we find power and strength in paradox, contradiction, and multiplicity? Okay, um, I'll start. Yeah, sure. Start. No, we can open start. 
Okay, cool. Um, well, it's interesting. When I sit down with the word contradiction, I think about... Um, I was thinking about the many contradictions that exist within the structure of capitalism. Um, some examples being uh, capitalism. It needs people to spend money in order to survive. Yet the firms that you know, run capitalism, accrue capital, exist on the exploitation and wage suppression of workers. So we, cr we have this sort of situation where people need to spend money for the economy to work, right? But they're not getting money at their jobs because that money is being produced and that value is like going to corporations and firms and into capital that's being reinvested constantly. And so the, that being like one example of, the, of contradiction um, in capitalism is, I think, interesting to think about because under a condition like that, institutions like the state enter, right? Um, institutions like welfare are produced. It's like, okay, obviously the system doesn't, like, can't sustain, uh, can't sustain itself. Um, it's going to destroy itself. And so it, it creates a sort of... Um, dynamic where capitalism is trying to save itself and we're trying to save ourselves from the contradictions of capitalism so we're attempting to survive um, and I think about how unfortunate it is that out of these contradictions out of these broken systems massive institutions of power emerge and I think well what should we do about that like how can we think about contradiction and how can we um, see it as a place uh, where we actually disassemble institutions instead of produce them to solve the problems created by, by contradictions, right? Um, and that a lot of the time, the reason why these contradictions exist in the first place is because those institutions that are produced generally by these problems that, you know, from my, like, sort of Marxist perspective that I, like, briefly explain because we don't have that much time to like talk about that but um, those those institutions are like that which we like press ourselves up against and like how do we make sure that in contradiction we're not creating systems of power and institution above it that create like things that we have to press our identity against like how can we use contradiction as a way of like disassembling institutions um, and that's um, sort of an insight I think that I think is really important. Yeah. Um, when I heard about the deity or the goddess that you guys were conceptualizing this event around, I was really taken by the idea of contradiction in the way that individual agents can subvert the images and the signs that we receive. So somebody like Mami Wata, um, and a lot of other voodoo or syncretic goddesses end up being reinscribed through the symbols of the Catholic Church. So there are people who were enslaved who needed to, you know, engage with and needed to serve their deities, but couldn't do it in the way that they had been doing it um, in their indigenous religions. And so then what they do is they take this goddess, for example, Mami Wata, and they praise her through the image of the Virgin Mary. 
And so it's almost like there's a code that ends up being developed, right? In the immediate, we're not going to dismantle capitalism. We have to live within it. But what we can do is we can use those signs to mean something else. So one person who is not like in the code and doesn't know what the secret language is is going to see a painting or a statue of the Virgin Mary and see just that. But then if you are within the secret community, if you have learned the secret language, you're going to see something else. And so I think that that is like, I'm really interested in the ways that people survive and the ways that people, you know, while being visionary, while being ambitious, deal with what has been given with them, given to them in the present moment. I don't remember what the question was, but this is a wonderful conversation so far. So I think it's just about yeah. reconciling the fact that our, our identities aren't really continuous. Um, they're bundles of contradictions because, you know, that's just the way things are. So how do you, how do you um, develop an identity or, or, or feel, feel, I guess, I guess confident in a sense in an identity that you're, you're very aware of the fact that, you know, it's not continuous, it's not consistent, we exist in contradiction. Mm -hmm. Can I talk now? All right. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I know for me personally, it's like a daily challenge to just exist in this weird world <laughs> that we live in, uh, especially being the weird being that I've been um, all my life. And I feel like all of us kind of know that path of just trying to discover who we are um, without having to like subscribe to any box. We've all been in that situation where we've been put into something or something has been placed on top of us or we've been pressed up against it or whatever. Um, and it's supposed to be like the identity we live and we breathe through. But I mean, I feel like I have to, I have to do the work daily to feel good in my skin. Um, and it's, it's become practice and ritual, and it's also just become like, you know, acquiring a village and having people in my life that I can count on to like reflect me and to also uplift me when I actually can't find the beauty or whatever, um, or be okay with the ugliness at the same time, so. I think that you bring out an interesting double bind in this in like storytelling itself, that on one end, telling ourselves stories about who we are like builds a narrative which does build an identity but at the same time like that identity can be extremely limiting because we're trying to build something consistent and it's it's like the key to to creating sustainability is to not ask for there not to be holes in the story and within kind of like larger or more hegemonic social structures it's very hard to do that but yeah, I just, oh, hello. Um, I just want to build on what everyone's just been saying and just this idea, Doreen, I loved your point about, you know, reascribing meaning to certain symbols and also thinking through strategies for survival and what that looks like and thinking about, you know, I have this very specific identity that I think I'm living in every day, but also acknowledging that it's not finite and I need to kind of push the boundaries of who I think I am and, and what I'm contributing and how I'm existing in the world. And just like I'm, I'm really interested right now in this idea of what is a good, 
what, it, what makes a good ally and not even in a person, but in a, in a company or an institution, just sort of thinking through those relationships and also turning that eye back into myself in the sense that, you know, I need to make sure that I'm being a really good and responsible and thoughtful ally when I'm making choices in the language that I'm using when I'm writing a story or when I'm who I'm including and who I'm deciding to talk to and, and how I'm talking. And, and if I am in a space, you know, I work at a place where there aren't a lot of people of color, there aren't a lot of queer people. So, you know, are people looking at me to be the representative? And I need to be careful with that because I don't want to speak for more than my small community or even myself. So I think I'm trying to turn a lot of that responsibility on myself right now and thinking through kind of the way I'm letting other people define me and also think about kind of how I'm moving through the world in that space. That makes sense. I think you bring up a really good point that actually is a perfect segue to a question that I actually wanted to ask you, but I think it's relevant to um, everyone on the panel and all the work that you do. So again, we're thinking about Mami Wata as this figure who kind of represents these countervailing forces, right? And I think that we could kind of think about the promises of digital media and social media in the same way, uh, in the sense that I think oftentimes, um, social media especially is kind of just framed as this democratizing space, especially for marginalized groups. Um, but I think at least I have bared witness to a lot of the sort of essentializing, um, you know, these contradictions. Like on the one hand, social media and digital media can be a tool to give um, exposure to, to, to some groups, give a platform to people who, who um, previously didn't really have access to sort of mass-mediated um, platforms, while at the same time, it can be really essentializing and expo explo exploitative. I'm thinking, Doreen, about your wonderful article that you wrote in The Fader actually about um, how teens, black teens, are, are, are really innovating um, on the internet, but you know, are not really receiving any um, attrib attribution or compensation from the corporations who appropriate their cultural production. So um, I was wondering if any of you could speak to that, sort of like what are the promises and pitfalls of social media as uh, a tool for social change, both in your own you know, personal social media presences, but also in the work that all of you do, in the in your collectives, as your your work as journalists and creatives and things like that. I have so much to say about this. I think like Brujas has been featured in like twelve different like mass media publications over the last two years, and it's this sort of crazy like internet phenomena that's so often misinterpreted. It's like we started like Bruja's summer of 2014. Um, and by December, we linked with Brown Taraj, who actually curated uh, like some of the stuff for today. And obviously like working with Brown Taraj was a delight. Um, and like they were in it for definitely the right reasons. They were the first per people to ever even acknowledge us as a, as a crew or whatever. Um, and like engaging with them was so chill because they sent us a draft of the piece before it was published, like little etiquette things that like no um, like mass media company would ever do. Like it's like against their ethical policy to like show you what they've made about you. Um, and since then it's just like after that one article, like we didn't even have an Instagram, like we weren't trying to build a company, we weren't trying to like sell things. Like we were really just two girls who loved each other and like we're trying to find space um, in a really male dominated environment. Um, and somehow like I brought it up to these these wonderful girls at Brown Tourage and they were like oh we want to write an article I was like oh that's a that's a good idea like we'll inspire some people but it went like tumblr viral and then like for two years after we just like constantly get like messages like we want to cover this we want to cover that like 
and like people like Fox 5 News like hit me up to like do pieces, you know? And it's it's gotten to the point where it's like they don't even care to even look into like what you're really about, you know? Um, and it just becomes a spectacle of like, like I, I'm so concerned all the time about like how misinterpreted I feel like what we do is. Like we're a very radical militant organization that like is principled by like people like the Black Panthers and the Young Lords. Um, you know, those are like the people that we look to for inspiration on how we like conduct ourselves and like what our goals are. And then you have people like Fox 5 News trying to make a cute skate story about some girls who like high five in the Bronx and like practice kickflips. And it's like, you're missing the point completely. Not only are we a political organization, like, but we, we also like do all this other community-based work. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a give and take because you know, we know that like by producing this kind of media, we're like opening up a lot of doors for other people and we understand the importance of that work. Like over the last two years, the culture in New York around skateboarding is like, I've seen it 360 in terms of like how many women are actually participating. And not to say that we're solely responsible for that because it's like part of a tide, I think, of like fourth wave feminism or just like girls, you know, doing awesome stuff as they always have been, but like, you know, feeling more comfortable doing it visibly and in public spaces. But I really do think that, like, you know, I, when I meet girls at the Bronx Skate Park where we started our thing, like, they're like, oh, yeah, I saw this article, you know? And it's it's interesting because women and other, like, queer people or femmes have never been safe in public space. So now we have the Internet, a place that's supposed to be safe, but there's all these hawk, like, hawking, like, people trying to make value off of that. And then there's also the comments section, which is one of the most like traumatic things about existing on the internet that like, yeah, I'm, I'm sure all, a lot of femmes here know like how, or you know, queer people know how hard it is to exist in public space, but like behind closed doors, these people are even worse on, in their comments. And it's like really scary. Um, so I don't, I don't really know how I feel about social media, and but I, I, I think that my experience, like I, I'm waiting to write the, you know, three thousand word article about like my experience, like being a, like a subject of like basically every media source ever, you know, like from the New York Times to like Fox Five News trying to get at me to like underground zines and just being like, where is this content valuable? Um, and where is it just like producing clickbait and value for people who are not compensating us whatsoever? Like also, and I, I'm so glad I get a public um, space to talk about this, but like Vogue did product placement on our photo shoot and like didn't tell me about it. And like that, I, I, they, they were like, we're styling the shoot. And I was like, that's awesome. Is it product placement? They were like, no, it's not product placement. We just like want to bring you some looks. You know, it's real cute, it's natural. And then when you open up the article, it's like, you know, Ariana Gill, some fancy Japanese designer pants, $345, this brand. And I was like, oh my God, like you didn't even tell me that, but you're like actually selling clothes on my body that's in its disguise as like progressive content. Like there's so much abuse happening in, in, in um, the labor of youth, like these photo shoots take hours, like, and, and we're producing all this value for people and we're, I've never been compensated for a photo shoot, like, you know, because the idea is that when you, like, 
I don't know. I've been talking for a while, but it's it's really serious, and it, it, it and it, it, we should really like interrogate it as like a, a youthful community, you know, and like how we approach it. Should make a media alliance, honestly. Yeah. I think I can speak to the other side of that coin, being a journalist whose job it is to, in some sense, be a hawk, to be able to look at what's happening both on the internet but then also outside of the internet and identify it as something that needs a certain kind of coverage. And it's really difficult because I felt that I need to atomize my identity across brand platforms or across company platforms. Like there was an instance a couple of weeks ago where I had done something for the company that I work for and it was centered on black women who are affected by police brutality. And a black femme radical responded to it in the sense of like, wow, X company feels that they need to comment on black women now. And I felt completely erased and completely made visible, but I also absolutely understood where that person was coming from because of course, when you think of a place like MTV or you think of a place like the New York Times, you don't think of individuals, let alone the few people of color and queer people who actually work there. And so for me, I haven't, I haven't reached a resolution when it comes to being the kind of journalist that I aspire to be, the kind of journalist that wants to provide humanizing, thoughtful coverage to people but then also having to deal with editors who honestly just like don't give a shit because they don't understand what it's like to be... So in culture, you're an object, but in whatever journalistic space you're covered, you're the subject, right? They don't, they don't recognize that shift that you have to make as a person to then sort of see this publicity and this spectacle as something that's good for you, something that's gonna advance your brand. It makes you paranoid um, and Sometimes even myself, I feel like I'm being used in a particular way in my industry because I'm going to be obviously way more keen to something that's happening in culture than some of my peers. It's hard. I don't, I don't have an answer to give, but I think that it's important to um, acknowledge that you have this like interior um, battle between wanting to do your job and wanting to like be the best within this industry, but also realizing that that industry de facto dehumanizes the people that you care about. I was just gonna add that I think it's been really interesting to watch how um, the relationship between who covers what and um, how people give access and consent is evolving. And I feel like I've noticed a few times I've gone into an environment um, just as an observer, not sure if I wanna write about something or not. and you know, someone in the room saying, well, we're only, you know, you're here because we think you'll get this. And I, and it's a really interesting scenario to be in because on one hand, ethically, right, you know, you don't want to be like in the business of access journalism, but at the same time, it does seem to me that if, if one is someone who has received, in their, you know, the object of a lot of media attention, a way to reclaim that power is to sort of be very judicious about who one works with, which is, it's weird to have that opinion, but also be on the other side of like, <laughs> you know, it's not what we like to do or hear, but I also feel like I'm seeing women and I'm seeing black women really 
you know, like Rihanna doesn't give interviews, Beyonce doesn't give interviews. Like people are doing very specific things because they don't like the ways in which their bodies are commodified and consumed. Um, but I don't know. I've been, I've been thinking a lot more about social media and sort of the hard edges of what we're kind of butting up against because I think we're at this point with a lot of big social online, very heavily political movements that get get very reduced based on how people sift through what they're seeing and decide to cover them. And I, I think I'm thinking about Black Lives Matters and those kinds of um, those kinds of campaigns because I feel like you, you're in this weird moment. Well, we're in this weird moment where you have two big tech companies that are, you know, Facebook and Twitter are trying to profit off of black death. You know, they profit off of black life and now they want to profit off of black death. And it's not just black death, it's trans, queer, brown, it's everything. And it's really disturbing. And it's the one thing that I feel very, it's something that I really want to interrogate much more closely because I don't, it's, it's really, um, it can feel really gross to sort of watch these companies sort of say like, oh, we're gonna change our, the sign outside of our headquarters to Black Lives Matters for 30 seconds today. It's like, what does that do though? I mean, you, these are companies that can, they have millions and millions of hundreds of millions of dollars that they put towards lobbying for immigration reform, for all kinds of reform. And they don't, you know, they, they, have, a, they have the ability to sort of advocate for certain things and they don't. So I don't know, I'm getting really, it's, it's an interesting situation to be in, to be like feeling as a journalist or as someone who's trying to be known or in any way whatsoever and feeling the sort of desire to spread yourself, you know, carve off little parts of yourself constantly to feed all these little fish tanks so you can be a person of interest. But at the same time, it's like, unless you're feeling like the, you're getting something very directly from it, it's a really hard trade-off to make, I think. Um, I feel like with Brooklyn Boyhood, just, uh, I feel like we're constantly deflecting people trying to co-op shit, steal shit. I feel like that's just the way this, the country was based off of that. <laughs> I feel like every company forever, everything that we exist around, um, has thrived off of exploiting people and off of killing people and all this shit. So none of this is new at all. I feel like it's just the same old shit and we're just... As far as Brook and Boyhood, like we're constantly trying to find ways to create our own narratives or have as much control over our narratives as possible. Um, and we do, like there are definitely media outlets that have helped us to um, get our word out and stuff like that, but they also don't trust us to tell our story in a particular way. Because um, I'm usually like, yeah, we're definitely down for this, but I have a filmmaker, you know, or we can give you like, this is what we want you to shoot. And it's never, like, we haven't really met that particular outlet that has completely trusted us and been like, you tell your story the way you want, all we care about is putting it out. Usually it's like, we want this angle, or we want this, like, um, they need something to make people click on that shit, basically, you know? Um, and I feel like one thing that we are constantly challenged with is feeling like we are so layered and complex as a collective, and the work that we do doesn't, like, you can't click on any of our social media and really understand it because our work starts and ends with the way that we walk in the world, the, the people that we interact on a daily basis. You know, the things are, they're very, they're micro and macro. And we're also not that concerned with everybody knowing all of those things. What we're concerned with is doing that shit and making it real. So that's a challenge because it feels a little bit more like a slow and steady crawl. Um, because you, you can get a lot of benefits if you can make you know, these mainstream outlets pay attention and get the thousands and thousands of views or whatever. But I guess we're just more interested in um, building connections 
and letting our story be heard by people that are really plugged in. And that might be a smaller group at one point, you know, that expands. Um, but it feels a lot more authentic and a lot safer because, you know, no matter if the news is good or bad, um, they want to exploit that shit. <laughs> We're really dope. We're fly motherfucking people. We create the dopest shit. Black teens create the dopest shit ever. I'm still trying, I'm, you know, I'm 32 now and I still work with teens and every week is something new um, that they're influencing in our culture. And so, you know, I just feel like that's just, that's the same old thing. And we have to feel, figure, and I'm glad that we have people like you that are working in these outlets now that can have that, you know, that vantage point to be like, nah, we're not gonna put this, you know, in this way. Like those stories would have never made it to those mainstream viewers if it wasn't for you being in those positions. Working with all these white people would probably drive you crazy. So shout out to that, because I can't do it. But you know what I'm saying? So it's, it's a complicated thing. And we're, we've all been in a situation where we've been trying to get in what we fit in since we got to this motherfucker. So it's just, you know, I don't even remember what the question is anymore. But yeah. So yeah, Ryan, I actually wanted to follow up with you about uh, Brooklyn Boyhood. If you could just talk more about what the organization does, um, the missions and goals. And then another um, particular question I had is, you mentioned that you know one of the core tenets of the group is being fly shit. And sort of the politics of self-care as itself uh, a political act. So I was wondering if you could talk more about how the collective fosters uh, the self-affirming environment and, and, and speak to um, being fly as shit as something that's radically political. Yeah, I'll start backwards because I probably forgot the beginning questions. Right. Um, so Brooklyn Boyhood, we're a collective. We started in 2009. There's five of us sprinkled all over the country, three based here in New York. Um, and basically what we do is, uh, in the corniest way possible, we, we spread love. And we do that through community building events. Um, we do a lot of intergenerational work. And by work, I just mean relationship building. Um, with everybody from the babies that are the sons of collective members to elders in our communities. Um, we do a lot of media projects that celebrate and affirm queer and brown masculinity. Uh, one of our most recent projects is an anthology that's going to be coming out later this month called Outside the XY uh, that explores queer and brown masculinity from writers and non-writers all over the world. And we throw dope-ass parties to create a safe space for people of color to party. Um, that are trans and queer, but also to just have a good ass time. Um, and yeah, I feel like our tenants, especially the one about being fly as shit, um, it's, it's really just kind of, we want to embody the, I guess the erasure of that fact and the fact that um, that's just been a fact from our existence, like our ancestors. If you look around the room now, you know what I'm saying? Like the funk, the aesthetic, the creativity, the fact that we're intelligent, that we have depth, that we're diverse, like all of this shit, um, is stuff that we don't get to see, we don't read about, we don't hear about, unless we're telling it to each other. So us feeling like we have the right to be in that and to feel that has been something that's been pivotal for all of us as individuals. Um, and self-accountability and self-care is one of our missions, and we try to uphold that um, as best we can. I feel like one of the easiest ways to describe it is that we stay in touch with each other all day long. We check in, uh, we take retreats once a year. We offer that to other people as well. Um, but it's, it's a constant struggle. It's really just about us being as real as possible with each other. Um, 
And that, that includes being as real with ourselves as we can be and that constant practice and work towards that. So, yeah, it's a whole heap of shit that we're trying to do. But essentially, um, we just imagine a way better world that we can all live in and we constantly, tr you know, thrive to push that forward as individuals. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I just wanted to add one thing to something you said, Ryan, about publishing the anthology later this year or this month? This month. This month, called Beyond the XY. Outside the XY. Outside the XY. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the most important things we can do is be our own, um, create our own media and, mm -hmm. and tell the stories that we want to tell in the ways that we want to do them. And that's, you know, in some ways we can do that within these bigger institutions, but I, I just fully think that having leaving that body of work behind too is the most like creating that archive of how we lived our lives and not having not having to be filtered or mediated through other people is is incredibly incredibly important for now and the future yeah. and supporting it also mm -hmm. um a, a, a couple of you have mentioned this idea about space and i wanted to get into that a little more if if you guys are interested so like ryan talked about the physical space of throwing a party where you can party and comfort and have fun. Ariana talked about a little bit the space of literally manifesting your body on a skate park and having a place to do something. And the same also for, um, for Dorian and Jenna, like whether that's the space on the page of a magazine, like the physical material place for a conversation. But also I wanted to ask about psychological space. Like how do you build a space to, to have a vision of, in which you look from inside out and perceive of yourself instead of, as, as Doreen, you mentioned with this, subject object transition always being the person being looked at and understood from an outside lens. So I feel like that is kind of like the second step that's much more complicated and difficult and there's much more like erosion and damage to be undone in that conception of selfhood. And each of you I think are finding ways to build that in, in, in your respective work. So maybe anyone who wants to touch on it. Um, so I'm going to start with an example from the Olympics, which I've been watching. I hate America, but I love America doing the Olympics. <laughs> um, and a couple of days ago, this um, swimmer from Texas named Simone Manuel won the, I think it was the, it was the 100 meter. Um, and she became the first black woman in the history of any country to win um, a gold medal in this event. And during a post-game interview, you know, she's really emotional, really ecstatic. Um, and the interviewer, which is a position that I'm usually in, asks her, you know, what does this mean for black women? And Simone answers in this way that really um, troubled me. Because Simone says, you know, it's been a burden to feel like I have to carry the black community on my back basically intimating the idea that sometimes your success or your achievement is just yours and having to always feel like you exist within a community of course that community can give you so much and you can give so much to that community but sometimes okay I think I'm good sometimes you you do want to just be yourself and I was really struck by that moment because I was one of the black women who was like yes like this is my little sis like she won and I felt um, ownership over her and she was rebuking that ownership you know in that moment and so I can't imagine what it must feel like for someone like her just generally when people put all this history on her and it's a double bind right it's wanting to honor your ancestry wanting to honor 
the peers that you have who are living presently and also wanting to leave a document for the future. But when you do all of that, how much space do you have left for yourself? And so for me, it's just, it's been really deliberate. Like I just try to carve out, even if it's just 30 minutes a day where I'm just not looking at any screen, I'm not talking to anybody, and I'm in a room closed by four walls by myself. Sometimes that's the bathroom because that's the only place you can find that. But I found um, I have anxiety and having to be public for my job means that I have to counteract that demand with intense privacy and with building practices, practices of intimacy with myself. And um, spirituality, you know, to bring it back to Mami Wata is, is really important to me. Sometimes, you know, I don't really notice when I begin or when I end it, but I find myself in a state of prayer and I don't even really know who I'm praying to, but just vocalizing um, those inner parts of myself that I feel like I need to protect from the public or I need to protect from the outside in a quiet physical space has been immensely important to me. Um, so I don't have any really highly developed theories on self-care because that's not a language that I feel comes to me um, naturally. I think that's the language that a lot of us have been given, you know, like, oh, politics and self-care, but it may not be that that's something that you are going to be given to, but that's okay. And I think that recognizing any practice or behavior that you cultivate that makes you feel a little calmer, makes you feel a little bit more settled in yourself is that practice. And you don't have to name it if you don't want to, if that stresses you out. And you also don't have to write about it. You also don't have to tell people about it. Maintaining secrecy, maintaining intimacy with yourself is important. Well, I was just going to shout out to that. Um, and I guess, uh, yeah, I feel like it just deliberately trying to find ways to heal myself, uh, which is difficult. Because I feel like we just have all this historic trauma and we have our own and then we have like the shit that is happening to other people's lives that we support or trying to support. So just like doing my little things, everybody knows I love getting rubbed, like massages, <laughs> professional <laughs> massages. Or by my girlfriend, thank you baby. Um, I rub her too. She's like, please stop. Um, yeah, so, and yeah, and the boys, you know, we be trying to undo all that weird masculinity shit, so we be rubbing each other too. Um, <laughs> and just, for real, like, actively trying to, like, practice love as an action, um, which is hard, you know? I'm trying to get back in the gym next week, I hope. Um, <laughs> and just, you know, this balancing act of healing on those levels and then just, like, when I have to go to the ocean and talk to my ancestors or whatever, or go home and visit family, which can be terrifying, but also really grounding. So it's just like, you know, like you said, tuning into yourself and figuring out what those needs are. Um, it's really hard, but it's just about making that decision for yourself and just doing it. Um, because we, we can't do anything without, we know that shit, but we have to keep reinforcing it. Um, that we can't do anything unless we take care of ourselves, so. Um, I was talking to Simone Lee earlier this week, who is the artist in residence at the New Museum right now, and if you haven't been, you have to go look at 
this world that she's built called um, The Waiting Room. And it's very much rooted in this, these care practices of political groups like um, the Black Panthers and groups of um, black nurses, secret societies called the tent. Like, you know, they were called, I think the nurses were called tents, but the idea was just that, you know, taking care of yourself and each other is actually kind of be seen as an act of disobedience and an act of um, radicalness um, because there isn't often that acknowledgement or that space given. And it, Simone was telling me that a lot of her work comes from this idea that um, marginalized communities don't, they don't feel like their pain or their, um, the weariness that they experience in the world is validated or accepted or acknowledged or even seen to the point where people are surveyed, you know, black people have a higher, they're more likely to just be like, oh, I don't feel, I don't feel pain from this injury. Whereas, you know, in the same exact scenario, other people are like, I'm in so much pain. Like we've learned to diminish and deprioritize our anguish and pain. And there is a lot of very incremental, um, you know, incremental like angst that comes from trying to be a human in the world. And I saw, saw Simone's comments too, and I was thinking this baby girl wants to just live. It's like, she's just trying to go through the world and be, I mean, you know, a multiplicitous human. And she can't because the world looks at her and they see black girl, you know, she just can't be Simone Manuel. And I was just, ripped me apart because of course that's all she wants. She doesn't want to be different. She wants to be like everybody else. And the world insists on telling her constantly that you're other. And it's just, it's really, it's difficult. It's difficult to reconcile. She gonna learn though. She gonna learn. Um, we gonna talk to her, we gonna find her, all the Simones. Um, but yeah, so you know, I've been thinking a lot more about what it means to have a holistic healthcare practice. And sometimes for me that means you know, I go to bed early or turn off notifications on my phone or, yeah, I spend time with the people I care about. And I think one thing that's been a big priority in my life is sort of rehumanizing the people, the names that I see all the time and sort of acknowledging, like, Doreen is a human, you know? She's a human. Like, I want to spend time with you and talk to you about your life and your world and not just DM you, like, LOL, look at this link. You know what I mean? Like, trying to sort of make space to acknowledge that we're all here and we're all struggling with maybe not the same things, but variations on just the agony that can be human life right now. And so I feel like that's the thing I've really been trying to embody is just that, you know, if I see something, if I think someone's doing good work, I'm gonna tell you, I don't need anything from you. I just want you to know, I think you're doing damn good work and you should know that. And so that's, that's part of the practice that I'm trying to embody for myself and other people is just that, the, I mean, because it feels so good to be seen. You know, and not as a commodity, not as a thing, not as a retweet, not as a whatever, but just to be seen as a human. And I feel like those are very small things that we that go a long way in terms of supporting everyone that we're in conversation with. Yeah, I think it's such a good question, Isabel, and I like really appreciate it because I actually haven't really thought about that before. But I think um, in a world that has psychological space for women. Um, I think it's really important to analyze actually why people choose to make art and how um, contrived and perverted that has become by the desire to sell that. Um, I think when people People create psychological space by producing art um, for themselves, and then we be, we get quickly entered into this dynamic of like, well, now I want to be really, I want to be good at it, and then when we 
you know, like I, I come from a music background, so like I went to a conservatory. I was like in a jazz studies program, and it was all about like how how fast can you rip, you know, or like how good can you be at skateboarding, or like how do you measure up against other people? And in that way, this very pure desire to create psychological space for yourself becomes very um, toxic as we choose to sell that, um, the, the product of, of that act. Um, and so with brujas, or like in my world, I, when I want psychological space, I just tell myself like, it doesn't matter if it sucks, it doesn't matter if you suck, like anything you do is rad. Like, don't trip, you know? Like, don't, me don't be trying to measure yourself up against everybody else because that is almost the dynamic that produces all the toxicity that we're trying to take a, take a breather from when we create this psychological space. So I think it's, you know, really important, you know, really resonates to just, just be, but actually just be and don't, and understand that, like, these, like, I hate to be, like, the one to, like, always bring up capitalism, capitalism, but, like, <laughs> that's me. <laughs> I'm always that person, but, like, capitalism is the thing that produced your desire to sell something that's actually pure and about you and nothing else. Um, so if you're gonna, like, Nessa, one of the girls in Brujas, like, she sits in the park and she tries the same trick all day. Maybe she lands it, maybe she doesn't. She's as valid as every other person, if not more, because all of the things that she's, like, had to overcome to create that space for herself is, like, you know, it's just more. And, I, and the same with me. Like, I never was, like, the most burning upright bass player in my program, but... I was like, I'm the only, I think I might be the only woman of color that's ever been in this program. So, well, like in that studio and I was like, fuck it, you know, like I'm gonna play this note and it's gonna be sick. And that's how I make my psychological space by just like remembering it doesn't matter how good you are. It just matters that you're happy. I don't know, that's corny, but you know what I'm saying? No, I love that. Fuck capitalism, like that's it. <laughs> I actually love that you brought it back to capitalism because it's capitalism that created the, a, a financial system outside of comparison that caused you to then compare yourself to other people. So that's just a larger, like, you're not a product on a shelf that's going to sell better than I think that else. was white so, supremacy. Yeah, so, like, that completely makes sense. Also. But that is, but we that, are being, I mean, we are being conditioned and trained to do that, though. And that is, I mean, that's the thing we have to really re-examine is sort of why, I mean, I love to document, I love to share, I love to be online, like, all those things, but we are learning to treat ourselves like things to be sold against other things and I think that's like the thing that we have to really be again like I, I have I see nothing wrong I mean it's like it's just a relationship we all have to examine with ourselves to make sure that we're okay with what that comes with but I do think that when we talk about social media like this is what's happening is that and I see it too with I mean and it's very easily like I see with younger like the teens that Dwayne wrote about but it's very easy for that to get taken from you very quickly because people are always sort of skimming and scanning to sort of see like, oh, this is something that we can maximize or let's take this style or let's do this thing. So I don't know. I don't know if anyone wanted to speak to that, but just, I mean, speaking to contradictions, interrogating capitalism at a marketplace, you know? Like, how do we grapple? How do we grapple with the very contradiction of this moment right now? But I think, <laughs> of life. But I think I just want to ask all of you, you know, it's been a hard year 
um, for women of color, for trans-identified people. Uh, I mean, it's been a hard, like, 500 years. But in, in terms of just, like, this year um, and all the, the, you know, the state violence and also just, like, the disparities of public outcry, um, in light of that, though, what have been some highlights of your year? Like, what have been some um, moments of joy, moments of progress, um, that in the midst of, of a lot of the, of the horrors going on, you could really hold on to and say like, okay, like um, in spite of it all, here's some of the, some of really dope shit that I, I think we should acknowledge. Brujas anti-prom, was anyone there? <laughs> yeah, that was really fun. I was really proud of that. Um, we've collaborated with Bufu and through a completely DIY party and all these kids skipped their proms and came, and it was awesome. Yeah. Okay. Um, we had like, even though shit was mad real with Orlando and just murder, 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 um, Pride was triumphant. It was like a really good season. Uh, I feel like a lot of people came together um, to our Pride party and to we had like a day party that weekend. We tried to create as much space as possible, honestly, um, for people to get together. And I felt like it was like extra joyous because people were like, we're fucking alive. Like just feeling really grateful to be with each other. Um, so that was dope. This book, um, Outside the XY, this anthology feels like, like the most important work we've ever done. So that, the fact that it's been like years in the making and that is, um, coming out this month is really, really dope. Um, and the fact that Mickalene Thomas did our cover is popping as fuck. <laughs> and she's queer as shit, and that's dope. Um, also, three, three of the collective members work for the Center for New Leadership. It's a juvenile justice, like radical ass, badass organization that was started by a Black Panther named Eddie Ellis, um, who passed away a couple of years ago. But he was in prison for like 25 years for uh, killing a cop. He didn't kill the cop. Um, but while he was in prison, he did a lot of organizing and just writing and thinking and bringing people together. And one of the manifestations of his, of his vision is the center, which still exists today. Um, and one of the things we've been doing is working directly with the police to try to get them to stop arresting kids and putting them in the system, but instead to bring them to us. Um, so we can really rally around them with uh, community support and mentors that are gonna be with them for years and access to resources and literally just like a family and a place to come that's in their neighborhood with people that they can trust and with a lot of people that have been up against what they've been up against. So this program is rolling out in the fall with, I don't know if anybody in here is in Bed-Stuy or from there, but we're working with 7-9. Some of y'all probably was in that precinct if you live. <laughs> in that neighborhood because they kind of OD. Um, but that's why we're working with them to try to get, you know, and I can't even believe I'm in public talking about working with the police. Um, but just again on that like humanizing kind of thing, the center is all about human justice and transforming these systems that are led by human beings into places that we can function around at least enough to be alive in this motherfucker. Because um, the police are gonna be here. So we're just trying to figure out how to do with that. So I feel like that program launching and getting the green light and starting to get funding 
is one of the greatest accomplishments also that the collective has been a part of. Um, so yeah, life is good. We're doing what we can. Um, I swam in the ocean last weekend and it was pretty damn perfect. So that was like a <laughs> yes. highlight. Um, so that's been good. And I have been taking a much more active role in my health, like the Orlando shootings and just general nonstop onslaught of police brutality all the time has been giving me a lot of um, just various health issues that I haven't been able to really get on top of. But I am healthy today, so I'm really grateful for that. And um, I feel like I've been really lucky to get closer to people in my life who have you know, want to participate in an energy exchange and an idea exchange and, you know, devotion and respect exchange. And I'm really grateful for that, to have people who want to receive and give in my life and just not take, you know, and don't need things from you, but just want to be around me. Like, I feel really, it seems basic maybe to say, but I haven't always had that, and it feels really special, so. Yeah, I think for me it would be three things. Um, probably the first thing is that I fell in love within the past year, nice. which is really nice. Um, <laughs> but it taught me um, that I can open myself up to someone in a way that in any other circumstance feels like, you know, that person would be a voyeur or that person would be trying to take something from me. Um, in a like capitalistic exchange and that this relationship doesn't feel that way so that's good the second thing is that I've been sleeping so much usually I've like I'm a masochist so I try and like punish myself by forcing myself to wake up early so that I can consume the news and be ready before everybody else but then I realized that that was a moot point because the same shit always happens so there's no reason why I can't like get a couple more hours of sleep <laughs> Um, and then third, this is actually a recurring thing. It absolutely feels whenever you're in a calendar year that that year has been the worst year you've ever experienced. It felt that way in 2015, it felt that way in 2014, but I think I've actually been really leaning into carnivals around the world. I haven't been able to travel, but I really like looking at photos and I really like looking at the global black diaspora just get so beautiful, wear these amazing costumes, put on this amazing music, and just actually shut out time, right? Because they're building on a tradition that is as old as slavery. We built carnival as a resistance to that. And it's another um, tradition that black and brown people have in the world that our colonizers can't understand. They just think it's Bacchanal. They just think it's people wanting to like grind or twerk on each other. It's not even twerking, it's whining, but that's a whole other thing. But <laughs> um, I've been thinking about that because um, New York's version of that is in a couple of weeks, the Labor Day Parade. And if you haven't been to it, I think it's a really great space to go to. It's really nice to see Brooklyn transform along the lines of the islands of the people who populate it. So yeah. 2016 is a bad year, but a good year. So I think that was actually a wonderful way to close on just everyone's victories. Yeah, I'm on a happy note. Um, yeah, it's been a pleasure and a real honor to have all of you. Um, we were really just excited when coming up with these questions to hear each of your perspectives, because each of you pre present such a unique and but critical set of perspectives. So to have you all gathered here today has just been a real joy. So thanks. Thanks to all of you. Seriously. Yeah,